I don't know if I have shared with you before uh, my deep love for Disney music, um, but I'm a Disney music fan, and it really wasn't until college that I fell in love with Disney music, <clears throat> and it was particularly the music of The Little Mermaid. Uh, and to this day, um, I can probably get through most of the songs of A Little Mermaid. Um, with, I, I don't think it would be advantageous for me to sing them, but, you know, I can tell you, uh, look at the stuff, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl? The girl is everything. Look at this trove, treasures untold. How many wonders can one cavern hold? Looking around, you think, sure, she's got everything. I've got gadget and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs, I got 20, but who cares? No big deal. I want more, right? And we could just keep going. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I am, um, I, I don't know why, but the music of Little Mermaid is just one of my, my favorite sets of music of all time. And so I, I've come back to it a lot in my life. Um, I did not realize until the end of my college experience that even though the music for Little Mermaid is amazing, the message is a little problematic. And maybe you've thought about this yourself. Um, it's not the best message to say to our little girls, hey, if you want a man to fall in love with you, just be sure to shut up, don't say anything, and look pretty, and he'll fall in love with you for your body and your looks, right? Which is basically the message of Little Mermaid, maybe not a Christian message. Um, so uh, I was, um, always had this interest in A Little Mermaid and the music and the message, and I came across three podcasts by Malcolm Gladwell last week, um, all on The Little Mermaid. I do not know why he is as passionate about The Little Mermaid as I am, but I said we are kindred spirits. And uh, in this conversation, he, he pointed out something really fascinating. He said that almost all of our fairy tales today tend to be what he calls poetic justice fairy tales. The Little Mermaid is a poetic justice fairy tale, which is the idea that at the end of the story, if you are good, good things will happen to you, right? And if you are bad, bad things will happen to you. So at the end of the story, despite everything that happens, the Little Mermaid Ariel ends up marrying her prince, and she gets to be human when she wants to be, and all those things work out. And at the end of the story, Ursula is impaled on the, the bow of a ship and killed because she's the bad guy, right? Malcolm Gladwell says the problem with poetic justice fairy tales like The Little Mermaid is they make us think that that's how the world is supposed to work. That if good happens, uh, it's because you are good. And if bad happens, it's because you are bad. There is a problem with that message, right? Raise your hand if anything bad has ever happened to you. So by the logic of the Little Mermaid, right, by the logic of poetic justice fairy tales, you guys are the bad guys. Um, not also a great message to give to our kids. So um, Godwell says that before the sort of poetic justice motif took over in the 1700s, um, there was another style of fairy tale, some of which still exist today, and they're the fairy tale twist stories, fairy tale twist stories. And a great example of that is Jack and the Beanstalk. You guys know Jack and the Beanstalk, right? I mean, Jack, I, I don't, I'm not going to get this perfect, but Jack has like one last cow in his family. He's supposed to take it to market and sell it so he can get food to plant seeds so that his family can continue to survive. Kind of like a Joseph story, actually, selling your livestock to get seed for your family. And he goes in, and instead of selling his cow to get seed, he sells it to get three magic beans. And the takeaway immediately is that Jack is an idiot, right? I mean, this is just really, really dumb. Uh, it just happens to work out in this story that the beans are actually magic. 
and there actually is a giant in a kingdom and he gets rich. But he doesn't get rich because he's a good guy, right? Again, Jack is a moron. He gets rich because he just lucks out, and sometimes good things happen to people that don't deserve it. That's a fairy tale twist ending, right? Good things happen to people who don't deserve it. That's how most fairy tales were told um, for a very, very long time in the sort of the fairy tale world uh, before we moralized them all. Uh, and I think this is a really important concept. And as we come to the end of the story of Joseph, I think until we get to chapter 47, we might say, hey, this is a poetic justice kind of story. And I think sometimes we're inclined to read the whole Bible as a poetic justice kind of story, right? Good guys get good things and bad guys get bad things. But then we get to these last couple of chapters, these last couple of stories we read, and that framework kind of falls apart. So let's talk about Joseph and Joseph, who has been this great guy, Joseph, who's been faithful, and Joseph, who's been uh, obedient to God, Joseph, who's partnered with God to save people from famine. Um, Joseph does some weird stuff in this story. I hope you bumped up against it as we read. So remember, he's um, taken their food. He's taxed them with their food to store up for the famine. Then he sells back to them their own food. By the way, this is not an economic policy that I think Americans can get behind, right? Um, after I give my tax money to the government, I don't want to pay to get it back. Anyway, um, he taxes them, he gives them their food back, saves them from the famine, and then they come and say, hey, give us, give us more food. He gives them the livestock. Then they come and they say, hey, we're all out of money and we're all out of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. And so he takes all their land and he enslaves the whole nation of Egypt to Pharaoh. That make you a little uncomfortable? Makes me a little uncomfortable. It's a really weird moment. I mean, Joseph, who has been this incredible figure in this story, Joseph, who has been really the, the best example we've had so far of a Jesus-like figure, uh, Joseph turns everybody into slaves. There's a couple of details in this story that make it better and a couple of details in the story that make it worse. So, some details that make this better. We are told later on, if you keep, keep reading in the story, we didn't get this far, that um, after all the Egyptians become enslaved to Pharaoh, they are allowed to keep four-fifths, 80% of what they grow, and Pharaoh only gets 20%. Now, for some of you, um, the federal government's getting 20% of what you make already, right? So, um, four-fifths sounds pretty good. But if you were a slave in the ancient world, getting to keep 80% of what you own is really good, right? This is a generous version of slavery, if you will. So, that's kind of positive, I guess. And the people seem grateful. The people say thank you, right? They're, they're grateful that He's saving them with His food. And yet, and yet, as for the people, He made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. There's actually a weird little detail here in verse 21. Verse 21, as for the people He made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other, uh, is that's the the translation from the Septuagint, which is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew Bible that's very, very old. Um, if you read the more um, traditional Hebrew rendering of that one verse, he says something different. It says he relocated them. He made them move from their homes into cities from one end of Egypt to the other. So he takes their land 
And then he makes them leave their land and relocate so they don't have ancestral connection to that land anymore. Rabbis in the Middle Ages talk about this passage and they say, boy, Joseph sounds like the rulers of Babylon and Assyria who conquered our people and then deported them into exile, right? It's a weird moment for our big hero. He turns the people into slaves, then he takes them off their land and moves them around. We get this line um, that seems positive, right? Save us, and yet tragic. Verse 25, you have saved our lives, they said to Joseph. May it please the Lord. We, may it please my Lord. We will be slaves to Pharaoh. Joseph is a savior and a slaver which is an uncomfortable part of our story. There is no song in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and a Technicolor Dreamcoat about Joseph turning Egypt into slaves. Don't know why he left that detail out, but he did. But it raises an interesting question, right? Why does Moses include this detail? Uh, Moses, the traditional author of Genesis, is telling these stories to make sense of the history of his people. And Moses and also the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, think that this is a story we need to have about Joseph, and I want to know why. It's a weird story. I mean, Joseph starts out as a slave, right? And then he ends up enslaving everybody else. Joseph's family, I mean, let's back up here. Let's get, let's get a big picture perspective. Moses is writing this book after the Exodus, to give the backstory of his people, Moses is the leader of the most successful, most important slave revolution in human history. Moses partners with God to free the Jewish people from slavery to Egypt. And after he does that, he says, you need to know some details about our past. And one of the details is that we invented slavery in Egypt. I would leave that detail out, right? I don't think I would include that in my story. Moses thinks it's critical for us. So, here's what I think. Uh, I think that Moses wants us to understand that something about Joseph's ministry in Egypt is flawed. That Joseph is not a poetic justice story where he was a good guy and good things eventually happened to him. Joseph's a more complicated character than that. So I got a couple ideas. I'm not sure these are right. I got a couple ideas about maybe why Moses and the Holy Spirit want us to know this story. Perhaps this is a warning to us that giving our devotion to unworthy human leaders will always lead to suffering. Joseph turns the nation of Egypt into slaves, takes all their land, but not for himself. Scripture is very clear. He does it for Pharaoh. He takes all the money and he brings it into Pharaoh's house. Joseph isn't getting rich over this. Pharaoh is. But Joseph has chosen to follow an unrighteous king. And I wonder what would have been different in this story if the Pharaoh of Joseph's time was a king who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I wonder what would happen in this story 
If the Pharaoh of Joseph's time said, hey, I'm not interested in owning my people or owning their land or taking all their money, I just want to save their lives. And I wonder what Joseph risked by following an unrighteous leader. Rabbi Shai Held talks about this story. He, he says uh, that Joseph does save countless lives in a disastrous time and brings about abundant blessing to the Egyptians, and yet he extracts too high a price for them. With these decisions, he plays with fire, and that fire will eventually wound his own family in unspeakable ways. The greatest test of character may be in the empathy we display towards those who stand powerless before us. That's really significant for me, uh, that perhaps the greatest test of Joseph's character is not whether he can be faithful to Pharaoh or faithful to Potiphar, but whether he can be faithful to those people who he is supposed to be partnering with God to save. Here's another maybe more simple idea. I wonder if Moses and the Holy Spirit want us to know about Joseph the slaver as well as Joseph the Savior, because they want us to recognize that there are very few poetic justice stories in our lives, and certainly in the Old Testament, that there are not many good versus evil accounts where everyone lines up clearly into one category. Um, in fact, even the story we've read of Joseph doesn't quite fit in that way. Joseph's brothers are the villains in his story. Joseph's brothers sold one guy into slavery. Joseph is the hero in our story. Joseph sold a nation into slavery. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line between good and evil runs not through nation states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Maybe Moses wants us to understand um, that there is good and there is evil in everyone, even Joseph. But I think perhaps most importantly, um, Moses wants us to understand that although we have been waiting this whole book from Genesis chapter 3 to now for a, a hero figure to emerge, for this guy that's going to crush the head of the serpent at great cost to himself, even though we've been waiting that this whole time, even though we said, boy, Joseph seems so much like this serpent crusher we've been waiting for, Joseph's not the guy. Joseph's not the guy. He's a great guy in many, many ways. He's not the guy we've been waiting for. And at the end of Joseph, I'm sorry, at the end of Joseph's life, at the end of the book of Genesis, we are still waiting. And so perhaps... The point that Moses wants to make is that this isn't a poetic justice kind of story. It's a story with a fairy tale twist. We get to the end of Joseph's story in chapter 50, and his brothers come before him. His brothers are understandably worried. Hey, we know that when dad was alive, you were very gracious to us, but now that dad is dead, we're concerned that you're going to punish us like we deserve. And they come and they say, hey, we're going to be your slaves. You're in the business lately of making slaves. We'll be your slaves because we did horrible things to you, and we deserve it. And Joseph has this great line. We've been talking about it the last few weeks. He says, am I in the place of God? And I've told you 
for the last three weeks? I think the answer to this question is yes. Not when he's a slaver, but when he's a savior, yes. He is in the place of God. And so Joseph forgives his brothers, though they do not deserve it from him. And then Joseph has this incredible line. He says, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. From the very beginning of Genesis, we started talking about good and evil. The word for good is tov. The word for evil is ra, fantastic. Um, You want to guess what he says here? Do you think he really says, God, you intended it for harm? No, he says, you intended it for ra, right? But God intended it for tov. And, And we get in this final story a recap of the whole story. The whole story of a people who thought we knew better than God, who thought we should define good and evil, tov and ra, instead of God, who took from a tree so we could do that, who've been trying to do that again and again throughout the story of Scripture with disastrous results. Finally, we get a twist ending. We get this idea that even when we choose ra, God can make it into tov. Even when we choose evil, God can make it into good. And this is what happens in the story of Joseph's brothers. And we end this story hoping it might happen in the story of Joseph's enslavement. And perhaps it might happen in our lives that for those in Christ, we recognize we cannot outsin God's grace, um, that God cannot be outfoxed or outflanked. He can even make tov from Ra. And no matter how messed up our life might be, no matter what bad choices we've made, no matter how often uh, in a poetic justice world we should be the villains, God stands ready to change your Ra to Tov, to let all of those mistakes become the catalyst that propel you into a life-changing relationship with Him. One of my heroes is another guy named Moses. Uh, It's not the Moses of the Bible. This guy is much younger than that. He's from the 300s A.D. Uh, And I actually have a picture of Moses or an icon. Um, This is Moses the Ethiopian, um, maybe more famously known as Moses the Black. Um, Moses is an early church father. And we we talk about the church fathers, we mean the, the leaders of the early church. Moses was an Egyptian who started his life out, uh, his, his early adult career out as a robber, and he was very good at it, and he had a gang of 70, 80 guys that helped him commit his crimes, and he was prolific in his criminality. Uh, he was well-known. Um, he individually was this big, hulking, strong, intimidating guy, uh, and he had a crime wave that he led throughout the nation of Egypt uh, until um, one thing led to another, and one day he had to take shelter in a monastery. And so he took shelter in a Christian monastery, and while he was hiding out there, he started observing the life of the Christian monks. And he was really impressed with them. And after a lot of time passed, he made a radical decision. He gave his life to Jesus, and he became one of those monks. Uh, However, his story continued to be really amazing um, because he had kind of a hard time adjusting to that monastic life and because he still had a lot of um, 
strength and charisma, some weird things came about. Um, one story is that while he was in the monastery, another group of robbers came one day, a couple of guys, or two, three guys, I don't remember how many it was, and they tried to rob him while he was in prayer. And so he got up and he beat those guys up and then he dragged him to the chapel where the rest of his Christian brothers were praying and he said, hey guys, I'm still new to being a monk. I'm not sure I'm supposed to beat these guys up. What am I supposed to do? Uh, and so the monk said, well, yeah, let's not beat them up, but you know, let's pray for them. Uh, and lo and behold, several of those guys became Christians as well. The journey of Moses the Black continues, and um, he really struggles. And uh, he comes to his abbot, the abbot of the monastery where he lives, and he says, I'm tempted by my, my former sins, and I'm feeling hopeless that I'll ever become the disciple that Christ wants me to be. And so one morning, the abbot takes him to the roof, and together they watch the first rays of dawn come over the horizon. And the abbot says to Moses, only slowly do the rays of the sun drive away the night and usher in a new day. And thus, only slowly does one become a perfect disciple of Christ. Eventually, slowly, over time, Moses becomes the abbot of his monastery. And in 405 A.D., yet another group of robbers comes and assaults them, a much larger and more violent group they are well-known, perhaps as well-known as Moses' robbers were in his day. Uh, and so Moses sends most of the monks away, but he says it's not fitting and proper for the abbot to flee uh, before criminals. And so he stays. And when they come, they threaten him with violence, and he refuses to defend himself, and he is martyred for his faith. And he dies in the monastery where he came to life. In Christ. Today, Moses the Black is venerated in the Eastern and Western Church as a patron saint of nonviolence. God can change your tove. God can change your heart. God can make tove out of Ra in your life. Like Joseph, God wants you to be a reflection of Jesus, an imperfect reflection to be sure. But even your imperfections may point others away from you and towards the only perfect one. And the journey that Christ invites us on begins with a really simple step. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Amen.